And now, if you'd like to, turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Uh, we're in chapter 11. Our congregation is working uh, straight through the book of Judges. We've come to the eighth judge, a man named Jephthah. We were introduced to him last week. Uh, we were reading there about how in the, uh, in the midst of great sin on behalf of the people, uh, God raises up this man, a man who is an outcast from his society, uh, who is uh, really abandoned, and then they went to bring him back uh, to lead uh, to lead them against their enemies who had invaded uh, their land and oppressed them uh, for 18 years. So we're going to pick up the story of Jephthah. Uh, I will warn you, this is an interesting passage. It's almost like uh, what we're wa- watch, uh, reading here is uh, diplomacy, international diplomacy. And uh, it, it may be on first blush hard to figure out what does this have to do with us, but uh, it does uh, reflect some important truths about our God and about how he works. So I'm going to read from verses 12 to 28. This can be found on page 291 in the Pew Bible. This is the New King James translation. Uh, let's give attention. This is the word of God. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. And they came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord of Israel, uh, Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aurora and its villages and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wrong me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. 
However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. And that's where we'll end our reading. May God bless his word to his people. Well, early in 2022, uh, when the Russian army invaded Ukraine, uh, there was almost uh, universal outrage uh, expressed about that. And what was interesting is that the Russians didn't say, well, uh, we don't care about your standards. Uh, this is an aggressive war for dominion. They, they tried to justify what they did. They said, well, these lands used to be ours, or there are people in Ukraine, Slavic people who would really rather be a part of Russia. We're going to liberate them. And, uh, and so they tried to justify their invasion. And what, what's fascinating, right, is, is even today we see the same thing going on that we just read about 3,000 years ago, which is that you have clashes between nations and a desire to be seen as in the right. Uh, so I, I'm doing what is just and right. No, you're, no, no, not you, but me. And this, of course, is something that we deal with all the time in our society because there is a great desire among people to be seen as just, to be seen as on the side of justice. Uh, the problem is that there are competing theories about what is actually just. Uh, the dictionary describes justice as that which is morally good and right. And of course, we understand, uh, to, to understand true justice, we base that on what God says is morally true and morally right. But in our society, that's not the way it often works. And in fact, often uh, Christians end up on the losing side because what is just is determined by popular opinion, by personal preference, not by the word of God. And so living in this culture where we can often feel uh, like we are in a minority and that there is no hope of actual justice being done, this passage is a great reminder because Israel had been wronged by the nation of Ammon. And when they complained about it, Ammon said, no, 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 you're in the wrong. And their only hope in that context then is to cry out to God, the one true judge, the only one whose opinion really matters. And this is helpful for you and me to understand in our own interactions, but also living in the society that we live in, that there's one judge whose opinion matters. And that is the Lord God. He is the one just judge that we call out to. And so as we look at this passage, uh, I, I want us to see the main point, which is that you and I need a mediator who will appeal to God, the just judge, on your behalf. And we see how this happens in our passage, and it's a great encouragement to us. And children, if you're going to draw a picture for me, uh, maybe you could draw a picture of this messenger taking a message to the king of Ammon. And listen as we talk about what it is that is in that message. And uh, for those of you visiting, if you fill out uh, the pages there for the kids, and then you come over here after the service, Mrs. Burton uh, will give you a piece of candy if you have done that, assuming that that's okay with your parents, of course. Well, there is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. You can see the first thing we want to notice is that you and I live in a world of injustice where moral posturing is the order of the day. Uh, now, we read last week, Jephthah, remember, he negotiated that the people of Israel said, hey, we want you to be our military leader. 
And uh, Jephthah negotiated to be more than that. He's going to be the head of the nation. And uh, interestingly, he acts like the head of the nation. In verse 12, he sends messengers to the king of Ammon. So he starts acting like the leader of this nation. And so he's, he's engaging in diplomacy here. You have invaded our land. You're oppressing our people. Uh, why have you done this? What, what have we done to provoke this? And so uh, there is an assumption here, right, that aggressive military campaign in this context is not right. Now, one of the things you have to understand is lying behind this is the relation, the historical relationship among these nations. So Ammon and Moab, uh, there on the, east, uh, on, the, on the east of the Jordan River next to Israel, Ammon and Moab were the sons of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And so what's interesting here is they are all related historically. And Ammon and Moab would not even exist if Abraham had not interceded on their behalf and rescued their ancestor Lot and, uh, and, and, and delivered them. And so historically, uh, the Lord has recognized that these are neighboring sort of extended family kinds of relations. The other thing that's helpful here is to understand that these two nations, Ammon and Moab, are often paired together. And verse 13 tells us that the king of Ammon answered. Uh, and, uh, and so it seems like as we go through this passage that it's possible he's ruling over Ammon and Moab together at this point uh, because he interchanges. He mentions the god Chemos, which, which is the god of, of Moab. Uh, I, I gave you in your outline uh, Judges 3, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 12 and 13, just to remind you that it wasn't that long ago in the book of Judges that we had an incursion by a group from Moab and Ammon. It says there, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palm. So just a couple of hundred years before what we're reading about here, uh, Israel had been, uh, had been attacked by Moab and Ammon and had defeated them. And do you children know, what was the judge who delivered them from Eglon? Anyone remember that for us? Who was it? I'm testing you now. Who delivered Israel from Eglon? What's that? Ehud. Okay, great. The left-handed judge. All right. Did Mrs. Briggs give you the answer for that? Or did you? Oh, he got it. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. I want to make sure one of the kids got it. Yes. So the judge Ehud delivered them. So now uh, we have another, it seems like, incursion by a, this similar group. And in verse 13, uh, the king of Ammon is trying to justify what they've done. He says, well, this is because Israel took away my land when they came out of Egypt. And then he describes the land from the Arnon to the Jabuk and uh, the Jordan River. So he's basically trying to say, no, no, this was our land. This was our land. You took this land from us. We had it first. So we're only coming in now to take back what is ours. And, and so understand what's happening here. Israel has been uh, sinned against, violated by this neighboring nation. And 
in response to their asking, you know, why are you doing this? They're being told, no, 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 you're in the wrong, uh, and, and uh, this is the right thing for us to invade you. Uh, Matthew Henry, speaking about this, says, and this is in your outline as well, even those that do the greatest wrong yet have such a conviction in their conscience of justice that they would seem to do right. And uh, that is certainly an apt description uh, for our day today when uh, we are ruled by outrage of one sort or another, everyone uh, doing what is right in his or her own eyes and feeling justified. I don't know if you saw any of the testimony of a young woman named Chloe Cole last week, a 19-year-old girl who uh, went through a transition to be a boy and then has now uh, transitioned back and testifying before Congress. It's only like five minutes long, but it is worth watching because she comes before them and she says, I was a young girl of 12 years old and, and faced with some challenges just as I was going through puberty and, and, and questions and difficulties and my parents went to the doctors and the doctor said if you don't do this for your daughter she'll kill herself so my parents were manipulated into having these things done to me so I was given Lupron uh, to suppress hormone I was given testosterone I had both of my breasts removed at age 15 and uh, after I had my body mangled with no effort at all to deal with my mental health issues, uh, I realized it didn't fix anything. It didn't fix anything. And she was there pleading with them, you have to stop this from being done to children. It's medical malpractice. And yet the people who are doing this are absolutely convinced that their cause is just and that this kind of surgery needs to be done. And so you can read the, their response to her testimony. You know, this is a one-off whatever, that you shouldn't take her seriously. And this is the society that we live in where people claim to be doing what is just and right when in fact they're doing things that violate God's law and God's desire. And we have to realize that we sometimes are guilty of this ourselves. It's easy for us to look at this and say, yes, I can see this as a problem. But how often am I angry with a brother or sister without cause? Or I'm proud, or I'm envious, or I'm overly critical, or I'm lazy, I misuse my time. And there are many things we do violating what is righteous, what is just, what is good, and we excuse it. We sometimes go farther and we make it uh, a virtue. So we turn our own uh, laziness, for example, into a virtue. And, And this is a temptation we all face. We need to be honest with ourselves. We live in a world where there is injustice running rampant and where everybody is posturing that we're morally right. But secondly, we see here that God, on the other hand, is very concerned about true justice on both a personal and a corporate level. So Jephthah sends messengers in verse 14. He's not going to let this false accusation stand. He's going to respond to what they're saying. 
And the Bible certainly tells us that God cares about justice on an interpersonal level. I put in your outline Micah 6, verse 8, a very famous verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is how we are to relate to one another on a personal level. Uh, with honesty and what, with what is good and what is righteous. But we see in this passage that God cares about this on a corporate level as well. Uh, and, and so this goes beyond just the personal level. Jephthah is defending his nation, his people, against the nation of Ammon. And so what he does then in verses 15 uh, to 20 is to recount the actual history that happened. And so he says in verse 15, uh, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. And then he goes on to explain what actually happened. And if you're interested in reading more of this, you can look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3 and Numbers chapter 20 to 24. But Israel was under strict uh, guidelines by God not to mess with these people and these nations. I put one example from Deuteronomy 2 in your outline, verses 9 and 19. Uh, This is Moses speaking. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I've I've given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So Jephthah goes through this history, and he explains, and you can see this on your map here. So this is all happening. The Jordan River runs down the middle, and we're east of the Jordan River. And Israel's coming up from Egypt, and they ask Edom, can we go in through your land? We're trying to get into the promised land. Edom says no. They don't invade Edom. They they go to Moab. Can we go in through here? No, they don't invade Moab. They stay, as he says, assiduously to the north of the river Arnon that's in the red box. That was the northern boundary of Moab. They're careful not to go into Moab. So they come in atop here. They stay out of Ammon, uh, up to the east a little bit. So this green strip right here, that's where they try to go through where the Amorites are. And they ask this man, Sion, this king, Can we pass through there? And he not only says, no, you cannot pass through there. He sends his whole army to attack them. And so that's why they're forced into a fight. They win against the people, uh, the Amorites. And so they settle in that land there uh, prior to going across the river. Because, as he says, God gave us that land. This is what actually happened. Far from being the aggressor, God's people, in this case were avoiding conflict, but then they were attacked in an unprovoked manner. So children, this is what I was talking to you about in the children's message. This would be like they ask if they can go through, and and then the whole group comes out and tries to kill them. But they call upon God and seek his help. And, uh, And this is important. Recognize this is in the scripture for your edification. This actually is significant that the nation is handling this interaction in a way that honors God. I'm not sure if you've read about uh, the senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, and what he's been up to in the last several weeks, months. 
But he has managed, because the Senate has very sort of arcane rules, this one senator has been able to stop all consideration of nominees for positions in the military. And so they just went on their uh, fall recess, their late summer recess, with over 300 nominees not having been processed yet. And uh, so some people could be saying, well, why this, this sounds extreme. He's doing it because the military has started paying all expenses related to any abortions that happen amongst the service women. And he said, this is a violation of the Hyde Amendment. This, is, this taxpayer money isn't to be used for this. And until you fix this, we're not going to have any more votes on your nominees. Now, I mean, that, that may seem extreme. And yet, this is motivated by the idea that it matters what we do corporately. It actually does matter. And God cares about these kind of things. And we often don't think in those terms. It's not just about my own personal interactions, those are important, but the, the groups that I am a part of. And obviously, uh, we have limited impact on what we do at the national level. We can certainly be praying. But we are a part of all kinds of groups, right? We're a part of a church. We're a part of families. Sometimes we're a part of businesses. And God actually cares about our approach to righteousness at the corporate level. So God cares about both personal and this text shows us corporate justice. And as such, we also see here that God, thirdly, God may intervene to accomplish his justice in your lifetime, in your experience. And we see this in verses 21 to 26. So Jephthah continues his argument. And he says very clearly in verse 21, the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained the possession of all the land of the Amorites. So God intervened. In this case, God intervened, and God showed who was right in this conflict. And uh, he's very specific. In verse 22, he says, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, the Amorites, and then he mentions the boundaries from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So those are the boundaries he gives, the southern boundary, that river Arnon, the northern boundary, the Jabbok, the, eastern or the western boundary, the Jordan River, and then what would be the eastern boundary would be the wilderness of Ammon. He's very carefully saying, we did not go into your land. This land was not your land. We didn't take your land. This was the Amorites' land. They attacked us, and God gave us their land. Uh, this is not how the king of Ammon sees it. As he said back in verse 13, uh, Israel took away my land when they came in from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. He left out the eastern boundary. And so you notice what he's doing there is he's saying, this land was contiguous to ours, so therefore really it should be ours. This is sort of like if, if, if Canada had invaded, I know this is funny, right? If Canada had invaded uh, Greenland, and then Greenland fights off Canada and takes Canada over, and then the United States says, well, Canada's ours. And Greenland's like, what are you talking about? It's yours. You didn't do anything. And we said, well, yeah, but they're right on our border, right? So therefore, it's ours. And this is a, basically what the Ammonites were doing and, uh, and Jephthah saying no. Furthermore, he says in verse 24, God 
gave this to us. You understand that if your God, Chemosh, your false God, gave you land, you would take it. And in fact, our God gave us this land, it is ours. And then he goes on in verses 25 and 26 just to basically say, look, the situation, this has been the status quo for 300 years. And during that whole time, no one has come to us and said, hey, this is our land. You're in our land. Give us our land back. That didn't happen for 300 years. So this is not a claim that makes any sense at this point. And I think the point for us is to see God sometimes, it doesn't do this as often as we'd like perhaps, but sometimes God acts in the world to bring about a just result that he wills. Often it is delayed. We know from our scripture that God ultimately will get his justice. But in our own lifetime, sometimes, sometimes we see it. And when we see it, we should celebrate it. Again, we sang from Psalm uh, Psalm 7 earlier, and I put a quote from that in your outline. God is a just judge. He's angry with the wicked every day. And then it talks about how God brings the trouble of the wicked back on his own head and in his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. But then he closes with, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. When God does intervene in our world, we should give thanks. In 1975, an eight-year-old girl named Gretchen Harrington, the daughter of the Reformed Presbyterian pastor uh, in Broomall, Pennsylvania, disappeared on her way to vacation Bible school. And they found her body two months later in a park not far away. And for all intents and purposes, it appeared that justice was certainly not going to happen in this life until last week, last week, an 83-year-old former pastor of another church that was doing VBS with the RPs was arrested in Georgia and confessed to the killing. 48 years to get justice. And her parents didn't live to see it, but other relatives did. And... uh, Sometimes it never happens. But sometimes God brings about his justice in our own lifetimes and we get to see it. We should be thankful when it happens to some extent. It's imperfect in this world. But God does achieve his justice as he was in what's described in our text. But fourthly, we're reminded that your ultimate hope is that God, the just judge, will vindicate his people in the end. And so in this context where they've been invaded and the invader is saying, no, no, you're in the wrong, what can you do? Jephthah says in verse 27, therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. This is what he does. He appeals to the just judge of all the world. He appeals to the Lord. The Lord, the judge. He is the one that we appeal to ultimately. 
Yes, in this life, sometimes the criminal gets away with it. Sometimes the lie is never detected. But the Bible tells us that God will fully and finally deal with all evil. This is why Romans 12, verses 19 to 21 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And God reminds you, he is the great avenger of his people. He will not fail to execute justice. It is not our prerogative to take matters into our own hands. We don't have the the right knowledge. We don't have the right authority. God has all those things, and God is faithful. And Jephthah shows here, before a single shot is fired in this battle, that he understands he has to throw himself on the Lord. And Barry Webb, commenting commenting on this, says, uh, this is in your outline, here at last, Jephthah's belief in Yahweh's unrivaled supremacy shines through and his willingness to stake everything on him. This is his finest moment and the one that most justifies his inclusion among Israel's heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. Because it does take faith to entrust yourself to God and to appeal to God, calling upon him to vindicate his people. And you may feel that right now is a very difficult time to be a believer in our culture. Obviously, we can look around the world and see it's a lot more difficult in other places. And one of the things that's so challenging in our own context is to see how rapidly, how rapidly things have changed, where standards of biblical morality that have held sway Uh, throughout our nation's history are just abandoned seemingly in uh, a short, short amount of time and the rapid pace at which these things are happening so that now holding biblical views of morality on a host of issues is considered hateful and evil and uh, not just that the church is a laughingstock but that the church is viewed as a positive evil by so many people. And you may feel that, uh, that uh, our hope of getting justice and God's righteousness in our culture is, uh, is impossible. And you yourself may feel like you have personally been falsely accused in some way and held out as guilty in some way. And this passage is there to remind you that there is a just judge who knows the truth and he is the one that you can appeal to and he is the one who will vindicate you. And whether this is in your own extended family, uh, in your office, um, in other settings, uh, God is promising that he will do what is right. And of course, we understand this isn't because we are righteous in ourselves. It is because the Lord Jesus Christ is righteous in our place. But the promise of the scripture is that you and I will see this at the end. I put in your outline a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 38, which asks about what benefits believers can anticipate at the resurrection. And it says there, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment 
and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. It doesn't get any better than that. But you see what it says, openly acknowledged and acquitted. You may go through your whole life here on earth with people saying you're guilty, you're the one that's unloving, you're the one that's the hater. But God says there's coming a day when Jesus comes again, when all of these things will be done in the open and God will say these people are innocent and righteous in my sight. As Mark 10, 32 and 33 say, Therever who confesses, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. That's the promise from Jesus. So your ultimate hope isn't for justice in this life, although we should pursue it, but it is that God will bring about ultimate justice. But finally then, the passage also shows you that you need a mediator to appeal to God, the just judge, on your behalf. Uh, Verse 28 tells us that the king of Ammon doesn't heed the warning. He's actually given fair warning. But it says that uh, he did not heed the words that Jephthah sent him. In fact, we'll be reading uh, next week, Lord willing, that he pays a high price for this decision. And I think you and I have to realize that apart from God's grace, we're a lot like the Ammonites. We can hear these warnings, but we don't receive them. We don't take them in. We don't listen to them. But what do we see here? We see Jephthah, the judge, appealing to God on behalf of his people. And he identifies with the people of God. I don't know if you noticed in verse 12, when he first sent the message, he said, what do you have against me? Why why have you come up to fight against me in my land? See, he has identified himself with his people. Or in verse 27, I have not sinned, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. So here the judge identifies with his people. And then with incredible skill and knowledge, he argues his people's case. That's what this whole uh, diplomatic text is. It's, It's Jephthah arguing on behalf of his people. And the fascinating thing is we know God hears because subsequently we're going to see God's spirit comes on Jephthah and Jephthah's going to win the, the victory. So here we have a mediator identifying with his people, arguing on his people's behalf and having an audience with God the Father who answers according to his desire. And this, of course, is meant to point you to the only mediator the only true mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect mediator who comes into this world, who identifies with sinful people like us. He identifies with his people. And then he argues on your behalf before a just and holy God. And and the reason that's effective... The reason he can argue on your behalf is not because you have this great, uh, th- this great track record uh, to prove your innocence, but because Jesus stands there arguing his own righteousness. He's saying to the Father, these are my people. These are the people I have died for. I have paid for their sins. I have given them my righteousness. They are clothed in my righteousness. And, and Jesus making that argument with the Father, you have every every hope that he is heard and that God hears and responds to his son. And that's what this text is directing us to. There are times when uh, 
human beings get themselves in situations they can't get them out of. We, we just have a new soldier who's come into, uh, who, who's now in North Korea. Uh, but from time to time, we have American citizens who are trapped in places like that. You can't speak the language. You have, no, uh, you have no ability to negotiate. You have no hope at all that you're going to find your way out. And the only way people like that ever get out is because someone from outside comes in and intercedes for them and makes the argument for them. And this is what we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can't be go before a holy God and say, look how righteous we are. But we can go to our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus can go before the Father, the just judge, and plead your case for you. And that's what you need. That's what I need. Uh, our only hope for justice in this world is the justice that God gives us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I need a mediator who will appeal to God for us. Uh, let's ask the Lord Jesus to do that on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that uh, on the surface this is a passage that's confusing to us. Why, why pause uh, at this stage in the story of Jephthah to give us this long uh, description of uh, what happened in the past. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what's going on here. We have one uh, who is chosen by you to represent his people, who comes forward and who pleads the case of his people, who makes the appeal. And uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, this is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless mediator who uh, makes appeal uh, for us before you. We confess that we live in a world of injustice and we're often complicit in that injustice. But how we thank you, uh, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to rescue us. And uh, Lord, that you are committed uh, to achieving perfect justice. We thank you that we see it in part in this life, but we thank you that we will see it fully at the end. And we thank you that we have every hope and that in Jesus Christ you will hear and uh, as he pleads for us you will forgive and that you will bless us. We pray that you would help us even this week as we see around us uh, different uh, people uh, claiming to be righteous while they uh, disobey you that you would give us grace to trust in you and to patiently serve you. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. And we'll I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 15, found on page 1174 of the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 21 to 32. Jesus has been arrested, he has been condemned by the religious authorities for blasphemy, he's been brought before Pilate, who finds him innocent of the charge of insurrection, but the people demand Jesus' death. And so tonight we'll be considering the shame of Jesus' crucifixion. Let's read these words, Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Listen, this is God's word. 
Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, for those who know me, you will know that my interest in sport is pretty limited. And in coming to America, I've had to get familiar with a variety of new sports. And that can be challenging, especially when it comes to American football. In the game, there is this frenzy of activity. And then 30 seconds later, it all comes to a stop. And you know something has happened, and yet you're not entirely sure what And then you have the football commentators who help explain what was accomplished. And they use their diagrams, they explain the maneuvers, and they tell you what one player did, and whether it was a good move or whether it was not a good move. And so today in our passage, we see this frenzy of activity at the cross. And maybe it's not the most obvious why Mark includes it in his gospel. Mark, remember, out of all the gospel writers... He is the most succinct, and so there has to be good reason for Mark including it. And so we need an explanation. And I'm not suggesting that I'm the authority. Instead, the explanation is found in Scripture. And so I want you to notice how Christ took your shame by bearing that shame on the cross, as was prophesied by Scripture. And so you're not to be ashamed of him. So firstly, Consider Jesus is the king of the Jews and the shame that he endured. One of the themes in Mark's gospel is that of the identity of Jesus. And in the first half of Mark's gospel, Mark is wanting you to figure out from Jesus' teaching, from his miracles, from him removing demons, from him raising people from the dead, from him forgiving sins, And then you had that momentous moment in Mark chapter 8, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then more recently, you have the chief priests asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus confirms he is. And then Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, it is as you say, meaning yes, 
but not the way you think. And we've got now to the point of Mark's gospel where everyone knows that Jesus believes himself to be the Messiah. And notice the title, King of the Jews. It's repeated five times already in this chapter. And here we see in verse 26, Pilate putting this huge sign on the cross and writing in chalk for the charge, the accusation for, of why Jesus was put to death, that he is the king of the Jews. And so he couldn't make it any more clear. But still the people would not accept Jesus as the king of the Jews. It's not what they expected. And so they respond to him in the wrong way. I wonder if you've seen the movie Notting Hill, and it stars uh, Julia Roberts as Anna Scott, this A-list Hollywood celebrity, Hugh Grant as an ordinary bookseller. And Hugh Grant takes this Hollywood actress to a dinner party at the house of one of his friends. But he doesn't tell his friends that he's bringing along this celebrity as his date. And this is a conversation that takes place between Anna and one of Hugh Grant's friends, Bernie. And Bernie's played the actor that uh, some of you will know as the Earl of Grantham. And Bernie begins by saying, so tell me, Anna, what do you do? I'm an actress, she replies. Bernie responds, well, I'm actually in the stock market myself, so not really similar fields, though I've done a bit of amateur stuff, P.G. Woodhouse farce, all that. I've always imagined that's a pretty tough job, low acting. I mean, the wages, they're a scandal, aren't they? They can be, Anna says. And Bernie responds, I see friends from university. They've been in the business longer than you. They're scraping by on seven to 8,000 pounds a year. It's no life. What sort of acting do you do? Well, films mainly, Anna manages to say, while keeping a straight face. Oh, splendid. Well, how's the pay in the movies? I mean, the last film you did, what did you get paid? $15 million, Anna says. Which Bernie replies in true English understatement, right, so that's fairly good then. <laughs> Getting someone's identity correct is important. Now, for Bernie, he only suffered embarrassment for not recognizing Anna Scott. He was not expecting this A-list celebrity to be at this dinner party. Well, missing Jesus' identity is much more significant. And the people miss Jesus' identity even though it was being broadcasted everywhere, that he is the king of the Jews. And that's because it's not what they were expecting. It jarred with them for Jesus. He did not appear to be a king. There was nothing noble about him. He had been captured by the Romans. He'd been condemned to death. The Messiah, he was to be this eternal king. How can Jesus be the king and yet be on death row? and not just any execution, to be crucified. And Paul describes crucifixion as being the most shameful kind of death. Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Cicero writes, even the mere word cross must remain far from, far not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts and their eyes and their ears. Crucifixion was so horrific, you couldn't even mention it in polite conversation. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst kinds of criminals. So how could Jesus be the Messiah when he was found deserving of this 
kind of death. It's interesting, even in Islam, where they believe that Jesus is not God, but a great prophet is what they say, they will still not accept that Jesus died on the cross. Instead, they believe someone else died in his place just last minute. So for them, not even a great prophet could die by the cross. So we see the people judging Jesus, evaluating him, but they find him to be wanting. Jesus is before the world in this passage, Jew and Gentile. There are those from the top of society. There are those from the bottom of society. They're all looking down on him. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. But they evaluate him as having no significance. And as a result, they respond by pouring shame on Jesus. And so you may find Mark's account of Jesus' death on the cross surprising. Mark, in very few words, describes the physical ordeal that Jesus went through. Verse 15, we read of the scourging. Verse 24, it speaks of the actual crucifixion. But that's it. Why does Mark not go into more detail about Jesus being nailed to the cross? Why does he not describe the wounds on his back rubbing up against the wood, the cross being hoisted into position and Jesus hanging from it, the ongoing pain that he was having to endure, how he had this terrible thirst and how he was struggling to catch a breath. There's no mention of any of this. Now, there is an element that crucifixion was common enough that a detailed description was not necessary. Everyone knew what crucifixion was about. And Mark was writing to Christians in Rome. And those believers would have seen crucifixion frequently. That was how the Romans handled rebellions. They crucified the culprits to deter rebellion, to deter others. But it's not just the physical suffering that Jesus faced. It's also the mental suffering that he faced by taking on the shame of the cross. And this is what Mark goes into detail about. This is what Mark highlights in his passage. The shame that Jesus faced wasn't incidental. It was a crucial part of his suffering. And so as you respond to Christ, the King of the Jews, consider not only his physical suffering, but consider the shame that he suffered while on the cross. And so secondly, when you face shame from the authorities, remember Christ faced that same shame. So Jesus, we see in this passage, he faces shame from a variety of sources. Now it may first seem like a random group of people, but actually these people who are mocking Jesus, they are all fulfillment of scripture. And so the first group I want us to consider are the authorities, in this case, the soldiers. Now, we have considered the soldiers before, how they mock Jesus, they dress him up like a king, they put this purple robe around him and um, this crown of thorns on his head, and then they pretended to bow down to him. And after that, we read of how they scourged him. And we see the results of that. Jesus is unable to carry his cross and that demonstrates just how weakened Jesus was by that ordeal and the state the soldiers left him in. The, the scourging would have left his back in ribbons. He would have lost a lot of blood. And remember, a lot of prisoners would have died by scourging. They wouldn't have even made it to the cross. 
And so by this stage, Jesus' strength was gone, and the soldiers compelled Simon to bear Jesus' cross. Jesus, the one who can control the wind and the waves, and yet he's too weak now to carry his own cross. The soldiers bring him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. The very hillside looks like a skull. The soldiers are the one in control of Jesus. They're leading him to his death. Jesus is passive. And this is in sharp contrast to the rest of Mark's gospel, where Jesus is very much a man on a mission. He goes to Jerusalem to be put to death. He's active. He's determined. But now we see everything happening to him. He gives up control to be in the hands of these soldiers for them to do their worst to him. We read that he's offered by the woman wine mixed with myrrh. This was a drink to relieve the pain that he was about to endure. But here's a glimpse of Jesus being active. He actively says no to this drink. He would face the suffering on the cross in its fullest extent. The pain would not be dulled. And then we see Jesus being passive again. The soldiers crucified him. While Jesus was on the cross, we read of how the soldiers divided his clothes. Even the very clothes of the Messiah, he had no say over. They were taken from him. He was left naked, nothing but a loincloth to cover him. And so we see here shame upon shame, nakedness, pity by these women, Weakness and not being able to carry the cross, led all the time by these Roman soldiers. This was the shame that Jesus faced by these authorities. Now, it would be very unusual for us to face this kind of shame from the authorities. But recently, we are seeing the authorities taking on power to control us. We saw that during COVID when the authorities sought to control worship. We see it today when authorities are preventing parents from being informed of the care their children are receiving in school. And often the tactic is the same as the tactic here as it was for Jesus. It's being shamed into submission. And yet, for Jesus, this was all part of God's plan. We read this in Psalm 22. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What the soldiers were doing, it appears confusing. Why would Jesus let them away with that? But Jesus took on this shame because this is God's plan. These soldiers, they appear to be out of control in their cruelty, but actually... This is God's intention. So Jesus faced the shame of the authorities. Well, thirdly, when you face shame by being associated with those of no reputation, remember Christ faced that shame. So earlier in Mark's gospel, we noticed how James and John, they requested to be by Jesus' side in glory. They were ready to enjoy the glory of Christ's kingdom. They did not understand that humiliation would have to come first. It would be necessary. And so when it got too difficult, we see these men abandoning Jesus. Well, Jesus had responded to their request by saying, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. 
Or while Jesus is speaking of those whom the Father would honor and glory, there is a sense, even here at the cross, that the Father is placing these two criminals on either side of Jesus. Ferguson writes, none of this was unexpected. All of it was under his control. Crucified as king, he was king still. He made the cross his first throne. And so these men had a place of honor beside the throne. Verse 32, however, we see their response. They reviled Jesus. Now in Luke's account, we do read of how one of these men, known as the thief on the cross, later does recognize Jesus to be the king and seeks a place in his kingdom. But at this stage of the crucifixion, we read of these men mocking Jesus. Jesus is seen as nothing but a criminal. Remember, this should have been Barabbas hanging here. Barabbas was an evil man. He deserved death. He was a murderer who killed out of political motivations. Jesus is sinless. He is righteous. His name alone is worthy of respect. And yet, here he was, seen as no more than a criminal. Has that ever happened to you? That you lose your reputation, rightly or wrongly, your name has been destroyed. You have been seen as the worst in the world. You're not sure how you can show your face. You are seen as no different than the worst perpetrators in society. Well, what is happening to Jesus is no accident. Again, it's to fulfill Scripture. And we see the Scripture here in our passage, Isaiah 53, verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Without Scripture, it makes no sense why Jesus was facing this shame. But with Scripture, we can be confident that God is accomplishing his plans here. Well, fourthly, when you face shame from this world, remember Christ faced that shame. And so we read of Jesus being shamed by the passers-by. They mocked Jesus. We read of how they were shaking their heads as if he was a fool. And they mocked his prophecy. You who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And the irony is that Jesus was fulfilling those words right in front of them. The temple he spoke of was his body. His body was obviously destroyed and being destroyed by being on this cross. Three days, he would later rise. The temple would be restored. The passers-by, they did not understand. And so we see the whole world hating Christ, hating the truth that he expounded. And for this, and this derision from the world is something we face today. As a Christian, you are to expect hatred from this world. This is what our Lord and Savior experienced. Many of you have even experienced this, even from complete strangers. For when you speak the truth of there being only one way to heaven, through Christ, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that you cannot change your gender. We're often met with mocking. It's uncomfortable, but it's not surprising. If the world hated Jesus, it will hate you too. But again, this mocking that Jesus faced it was not by accident. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Psalm 89, verse 41, all who passed by the way plundered him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. Psalm 22, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. 
They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Mockery from the world is clearly part of God's plan. It seems to be out of control, but actually this was a shame that Jesus had to face. Well, fifthly, when you face shame from religious authorities, remember Christ faced that shame. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they also mocked Jesus. And of course, they would do it among themselves. They don't want to appear crass among the crowds. And they are delighting to see Jesus now on the cross. This is what they longed for. Their mockery is how Jesus was able, their mockery is how Jesus was able to save others. He healed people of illnesses. He raised the dead. And yet he could not save himself. They would only believe him to be king, to be Messiah, if he came down from the cross. These are the men who have been waiting for the Messiah to come all these years. They are familiar with all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling right in front of them. And yet they could not see that Jesus is the Messiah. And what they are saying did not make sense. The Messiah could not save himself if he is to save others. To save his people, he has to die in their place. His life was a sacrifice. And so he gave up his life so that his people would know healing. Jesus faced mockery from the religious establishment. And again, that's true today, isn't it? Some of the worst mockery that Christians face is from those who say they are religious. They pretend to be religious, and yet they abandon the truth. They present God in a different way than how he is revealed in Scripture. And they are frustratingly the ones that the media seem to interview. And they make a mockery of our faith in Christ when they deny the scriptures. And so again, this is no accident. Jesus came as the suffering servant. We see that in Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The chief priests, they did not see that Jesus Christ was the sacrificial lamb, that his death, it wasn't a defeat, but it's actually a victory, for by it he paid the price for our sins. Jesus, by dying, was fulfilling God's plan of salvation. Well, sixthly and finally, Jesus bore your shame, so you are not to be ashamed of him. So throughout the sermon, we've been considering the shame that Jesus has faced. And he had to face this shame because of your shame. Our sins, they deem us guilty, but they also leave us ashamed. And we know this. How many of us are willing to volunteer to share the sins that we have committed over the past week? No, not one of us. We would be so ashamed. We would prefer to hide and cover up rather than admit to the sins we have committed. We instead, we try and show off what we think is presentable. That's why we want to tout our good works to distract from our shame. So you must recognize that Jesus came to bear your shame on himself. 
And so the shame that Jesus was facing by these mockers and revilers is all part of his mission. When he prophesied of this in Mark 10, when he said he's going up to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus knowingly went to the cross to bear your shame. He became worthless and dirty in people's eyes. He disgusted people, so much so that they put him to death. So don't see Jesus' death as a noble death. We have turned the cross into something beautiful when it is horrific. Jesus was viewed on the cross as criminals are viewed in the electric chair. There is no sympathy. Scrivener writes of Christ's shameful death, He is dissected before a hateful crowd, stripped naked, teased and spat on by his killers, punched and punched and punched again. Here is a God who cares nothing for appearances. Here is a God who cares nothing for earthly glory. Literally nothing is beneath his dignity. There are no depths he will not plumb to save you. This is how he would rescue you from your shame. The writer of the Hebrews helps us understand what got Christ through the cross, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the mockery and the shamefulness of the cross so that you would have faith. We even read that this gave him joy. That's what kept him going. That's what enabled him to get to stay on that cross and receive the mockery of those mockers. That's what enabled him to remain silent and complete his mission. And the result was his people are free from sin, shame, and death. McCoy writes, behind the blood, shame, and mockery, you find a most beautiful Lord who absorbs the world's evil in his own body. That's what makes him king of kings. The people did not recognize Jesus as the king because of the shame. But it is because of the shame that Jesus is our king. He took your shame on himself to rescue you. Isaiah puts this beautifully. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. The way out of shame is not by hiding away. It's not by trying to do penance for your shame. It's not even by feeling sorrow and remorse. No, it's recognizing who Christ is. He is your King. He is your husband, as Isaiah says. He is your Redeemer. And so in him, your shame has been covered. In him, you have received a new identity as one of God's children. And so you receive Christ's reputation. Edwell says, sin links you to the wrong person. Faith links you to the right one. And so as a result of Christ taking your shame, you're not to be ashamed of him. We see this in our passage. We read of how Simon from Cyrene, from North Africa, was compelled to help out. He would have to carry the cross for Jesus. 
And we also read of Simon um, having two sons. There's Alexander and there's Rufus. And it's assumed that these two men were, and these three men were well known in the New Testament church, or at least to the church in Rome that Mark was writing to. And we do read of a Rufus in Romans 16. And we read of a Simon who is a teacher in the Antioch church. Ferguson writes, the story of their conversion was perhaps so well known that Mark did not need to say any more. If so, he could have given no clear hint of the power of God's kingdom that this, in his weakest hour, Jesus began his reign of grace in one home and in this family. Just imagine how shameful it must have been for Simon to carry the cross of what appeared to be a criminal, a fool, a liar. But Simon, when he did recognize who Jesus was, when he he felt privilege, he felt joy, he got to carry the cross of his Lord and Savior, of the King. Well, you and I, we will experience shame for Christ. It's becoming more and more evident that our culture does not accept Christ, does not hold to Christ's standards. One opponent of same-sex marriage writes, a culture has developed whereby it's acceptable to vilify, mock, abuse, and shame anyone who stands in the way or even raises questions about whether we should legalize same-sex marriage. I've been called a homophobe, a bigot, and been told that my views are disgusting. And that attitude is not simply for those who are against same-sex marriage. It is an attitude that's becoming more and more evident for all who hold to Christ. You and I, if we haven't already, we will be shamed for following Christ. Richard Wormbrand, the famous Romanian pastor who was imprisoned during communist rule, uh, describes the most effective way the authorities had to destroy a pastor and it was to arrest him, and it was then to spread a rumor among the village that he is a vile sex offender. And when the pastor was released, the village mob would do the rest. In the world's eyes, you might be seen as scum, worthy of all the shame that you face. There may be no earthly vindication, but know that you share in fellowship of Christ. Just remember the words of Paul as we had in the call to worship. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. It is is God's way to bring you and I, shameful sinners, into a relationship with God. So Christ took your shame by bearing your shame on the cross as was fulfilling scripture. And so you are not to be ashamed of him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior, for how he took our shame, our uncleanness, our sinfulness. And this was so evident by him receiving the shame of the cross. And we thank you that our shame has been removed since we are in Christ. Help us to not be ashamed of you, but Lord, that you would give us the strength to stand against this world and so remain true to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I ask you to please turn in your blue psalm book to Psalm 22d. Psalm 22d, the psalm speaks of Christ, the seed worthy of all praise and glory. 
And that's because he did not despise the poor or scorn the wretched. Instead, in Christ, we know satisfaction. We know joy. We know eternal life. Let's praise God with these words, Psalm 22D.